It's summertime, which means school's out and parents everywhere are trying to figure out how to keep their kids entertained and engaged during their break from school. I booked a few different camps for my eight-year-old this summer, but that doesn't solve for the other several weeks she has no activities planned. Without school, she can go wild with wonder this summer after enrolling in their flexible and fun learning experiences. OutSchool offers over 140,000 online classes and camps for kids with varying interests. It's inevitable. The very moment I start celebrating the summer break, I also begin feeling pressure to make sure my daughter isn't spending too much time on her devices and more time engaging her brain. OutSchool offers the best solutions with their wide range of classes, such as video game design, freestyle dancing, and magic lessons. My daughter's basically an only child because her siblings are so much older. I love that OutSchool also gives my daughter an opportunity to be social by connecting with teachers and kids around the world. OutSchool will have your kids loving to learn and having fun doing it. Head over to OutSchool.com Murderish and use code Murderish to learn all about OutSchool's summer programs and save $15 on your child's first class. That's O-U-T S-C-H-O-O-L dot com slash murderish to save $15 on your child's first class. Outschool.com slash murderish, code murderish. I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode involves discussions about a heinous hate crime that may be especially disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On a crisp evening in March of 1981, 
Michael Donald became the latest victim in America's history of racial violence. The young black man was beaten, killed, and lynched by two members of the local Ku Klux Klan in his hometown of Mobile, Alabama, for nothing more than crossing their path. The resulting investigation triggered his mother, Beulah Mae Donald, to sue the state clan into oblivion. A small comfort for the victim of America's last recorded lynching and his family. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Michael Donald. Mobile is a major port city in Alabama, situated on the Gulf Coast, only 10 feet above sea level. The location, with its long, humid summers, make it a prime spot for hurricanes to land. 22% of Mobile's population lives below the poverty line, and in the early 1980s, about a third of the people living there were black. But the town's top echelons of government power stayed completely white until 1985. This included a squad within the police force that earned a reputation for harassing minorities in the 1970s. In 1981, the city still grappled with social changes that had begun a decade and a half before. The civil rights movement had ended segregation by law, but many citizens who fought it remained in the area and continued to be hostile toward their black neighbors. So did the city's branch of the Ku Klux Klan the white supremacist terrorist organization that sprung up during Reconstruction after the Civil War. Local historian Scotty Kirkland says that the Mobile Alabama clan was small but active and remained so right up into the 1980s. According to Kirkland, this particular group was part of the United Clans of America, responsible for a number of violent acts against black people around the state in the 1960s. At the time Michael Donald was living in a local housing project with his mom and older siblings, the city's Klan members were furious that a recent jury trial couldn't reach a verdict against another black man in the killing of a white police officer. Kirkland said the Klan likely saw it as another crack in the window of their perfect society. So when Klan members Henry Hayes and James Knowles spotted 19-year-old Michael Donald walking down the street one night, they took their wrath out on him. Around 11 p.m. on March 20, 1981, Michael had left his adult sister's house to buy her a pack of cigarettes from a corner store. As Michael walked through their residential area, the two Klansmen rolled up to him in Hayes' car. They pretended to need Michael's help with directions. And when he got close enough to talk to them, they pointed their gun at Michael and shoved him into the back seat. After driving into the next county, they stopped and Michael tried to escape. But Hayes and Knowles ran after the young man, caught him, and beat him with a heavy tree branch. When Michael fell unconscious, Hayes put a hangman's noose around his neck and pulled on it. Then they proceeded to cut Michael's throat. After the deadly attack, they put Michael's battered body in the back seat of Hayes' car. Afterward, the Klansmen set a cross on fire on the lawn of the Mobile County Courthouse before going back to the house where the rest of their group was staying. That night, 
Beulah May Donald had a dream about a funeral casket. She told the New York Times that as she slept, she saw a gray casket in her living room, holding a man she couldn't see. When Beulah woke up around 2 a.m. the morning of March 21st, she looked into the bedroom where Michael usually slept. He wasn't in there, but Beulah wasn't worried because she knew Michael had been at his sister's place until late in the evening and probably just stayed over. But when she called the other house, Michael's sister said he had left before midnight. Beulah got started with her day around dawn, keeping an eye out for Michael, but he never turned up. When she went outside to rake her yard a few hours later, a neighborhood lady who sold insurance told Beulah the police had found a body nearby. But Beulah didn't connect that with the call she soon received. Someone had found Michael's wallet in a trash can, and she thought that meant he was still alive. According to the New York Times, the woman told Beulah, no baby, they had a party there and they killed your son. Michael Donald's body was found hanging from a camphor tree the morning of March 21st, 1981, in what the New York Times report called a mixed residential neighborhood. It was about a mile from the mobile police station and directly across the street from a house in which the Klan members were gathered to commiserate about the other trial's lack of a conviction. The Klan members remained at the house and came outside to watch when police discovered Michael's body sometime between 6 and 7 that morning. The Times reported that later, another Klansman would tell the police that Benny Jack Hayes, their leader, described that eerie morning as a pretty sight. Benny Jack's son, Henry, was one of Michael's killers and the one who lynched him. Michael's body had been hoisted onto a rope that used 13 loops to secure its noose knot. His lyncher had deliberately raised it high enough to catch the wind, but low enough to still be prominent within the tree's dense branches and leaves when he and Knowles came back the night before. As 25 policemen rushed to the crime scene to gather evidence, a crowd of neighbors grew as well. They were mostly other black families and people like the women who had talked to Beulah earlier that day, all coming together in disbelief and mourning. Michael's siblings also came to their mother's side. In the CNN documentary, The People vs. the Klan, Michael's sister Cecilia Perry said that Mobile was a quiet town, but after her brother's lynching, she couldn't look at the abundance of old trees the same way again. Cecilia said, it was kind of like creepy to me. Across the street from where Michael's body hung from a tree, the Klansmen watched the investigation without any signs of trying to hide what two of their members had done. The police interrogated them less than two hours after Michael's body was found, but they wouldn't formally become suspects for almost two years. Michael Anthony Donald was born on July 24, 1962 in Mobile, Alabama. He was the youngest of seven children born to Beulah May and David Donald. At some point, David moved his family up north but Beulah divorced him soon after Michael was born and took her children back to Mobile to raise them on her own in their hometown. Beulah told the Times that by the time Michael was born, she was tired. Born in 1919, Beulah had dropped out of school in the 10th grade to have her first child. She'd always worked outside of the home, as well as taking care of the family by herself, even when Michael's father was around. She told the paper, I had a sorry husband. 
The same year Michael was born, Beulah had been in the hospital for a year recovering from extreme exhaustion. But once her husband was out of the picture and the family was back in Alabama, she went right back to work. It was never quite enough, but she did what she could for her kids and let them know the value of things, according to the Times. Beulah also took the family to church every Sunday and said she used her own strong faith to get them through hard times. By all accounts, Michael grew up in a happy, loving family. His older siblings doted on him, and his mother found him to be a source of self-reliance and strength. Beulah told the Times that her youngest child never asked her for anything and seemed to understand their situation intuitively. If Michael came home and saw his mother lying down, she said he'd know she wasn't feeling well and would do little things to help her out and cheer her up. Michael went through the local public school system with good behavior and good grades. After graduating high school, he attended trade school to become a brick mason. Michael was attending that program while working part-time in the mailroom of the Mobile Press Register, their local newspaper, at the time he was killed. At 19 years old, Michael Donald was an unassuming-looking young black man. He stood at average height with a slender build, a round face, and a close-cropped head of black curls. He played basketball on a local recreational team, and his mother says his only vice was smoking cigarettes. She didn't like it, but she didn't argue with him after Michael reasoned that he was going to college, so he should be able to have a few cigarettes. Mother and son seemed to agree on everything else, and Michael lived with her with no intentions of moving out while he completed his studies. As Michael grew into early adulthood, his older siblings moved out and started having their own children. The whole family had a habit of getting together at oldest sibling Betty's house on Friday nights to watch basketball. His sister Cecilia said Michael was always happy to help out with his younger nieces, nephews, and cousins by watching them during the day before he went to work at night. Michael exemplified a larger sense of close-knit community that his family kept even after his death. I've been telling you guys about Stamps.com for a while now, so you probably already know what a game changer it's been for my husband's and my businesses. It makes absolutely no sense to drive to the post office and wait in line when you can ship packages without ever leaving your house or office. Over a million businesses have used Stamps.com, and here's why. You get discounts that aren't available anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. You don't even need any fancy equipment. Only a regular computer and printer are needed to print postage and ship without ever driving anywhere to do it. Plus, Stamps.com works great with Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, and so much more. And it doesn't matter if you're a startup, small business, or a business with a large warehouse that ships large quantities of product every day. You can download Stamps.com's user-friendly software and start shipping more efficiently right away. Stop wasting time and start saving money when you use Stamps.com to mail and ship. Sign up with promo code MURDERISH for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MURDERISH. 
The next time your friend or partner mysteriously disappears into another room, you can almost bet they snuck off to play Best Fiends, a really fun and challenging mobile puzzle game. I'm well past level 1800 now, and I've gotten there by playing Best Fiends during TV commercial breaks, standing in line at the grocery store, and whenever else I can get a few minutes to myself. It's nice because when I have to stop playing, it's not really a big deal because I can easily pick up where I left off the next time I play. I usually play a few levels at a time and then go about my day until the next time I can sneak off and play again. Best Fiends is free to download and there are thousands of exciting levels with new adventures and challenges every time you play. The game never feels stale or boring. There's always something new and fresh when you pick up and play. I really love that I can customize my team of fiends as part of my strategy to defeat the slugs. And the dozens of unique fiends can be powered up to new levels and then you can watch them transform and get more powerful. And if you're without an internet connection, you can still play the game. I live in a canyon and unfortunately, our internet goes out more often than I'd like. Luckily, I can still play Best Fiends to get me through the boredom. Download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. The investigation began when Michael's body was found on the morning of March 21, 1981. Mobile police arrived on the scene and identified Michael by his ID in the wallet that was found in a dumpster down the street. Homicide detectives were called in and the scene was barricaded immediately. Former homicide detective Wilbur Williams told CNN there were no eyewitnesses. As documented in The People vs. The Klan, Williams said, We just started investigating everything we could. Williams and fellow detective O.C. Lockett heard an all-call bulletin on their police radios around dawn, which led them to Herndon Avenue and the half a dozen policemen already on the scene. The detectives got on their hands and knees to search the street for clues, eventually finding a single drop of blood across the street from where Michael hung. Michael's jacket was covered in blood and an unusual powdery type of dirt. It was obvious that the cut to his throat had been what killed him, but there were no other leads to where his actual death may have occurred. When the coroner left the scene with Michael's body, Williams and Lockett were warned by their superiors to keep the time of death from leaking to the public. But the public gathering around the scene caught wind of what happened. And by the time the family was notified and arrived on scene, the focus of the investigation had started to get lost in the crowd. According to the Times, the mobile police chief at the time, Winston J. Orr, was convinced from the beginning that the Klan was involved. But an article from the Daily Beast stated that Orr was only an interim leader and the force had no official cohesive homicide department during a time when Mobile's murder rate was climbing to the highest in America. In the Daily Beast article, Williams said the resulting investigation was bedlam with no supervision, no command, no control. At the time, police officers didn't communicate or add their information to one central source. Instead, they took tips, offered rewards, and followed leads on their own. Williams and Lockett often only knew about found details by chance, and they had to chase down every single scrap of possible evidence to make sure they could say they'd covered it all. 
the general lines of questioning started to go down a path indicating a drug deal gone wrong. Although there was no real evidence for this beyond a few drug users who claimed to have seen Michael on the street the night he died. Williams didn't believe any of it because the witness's timeline conflicted with the time of death the coroner had confirmed by then. Still, the mobile district attorney insisted that they pursue that line of questioning. Michael's mother, Beulah, was so convinced that her son wasn't involved with drugs, she allowed detectives to ransack the house she shared with Michael, including his bedroom. Although the police found nothing, Williams said the intrusion destroyed their relationship with the Donald family. Detective Williams also had his own personal issues to overcome, especially in a case like this. In 1976, Williams had been one of eight mobile police officers present when a black man was arrested on suspicion of robbery. After the man had been handcuffed, he denied having anything to do with the charges. One of the officers accused him of lying and then put a rope around the black man's neck. The man said he was pulled up onto a tree branch hard enough to pass out. He survived and all of the officers faced discipline charges. But Williams said he wasn't there for most of the disturbing incident. In the Daily Beast, he said that he'd helped chase down the black man and saw him handcuffed, but right after that, he responded to another radio call that took him away from the scene and kept him busy the rest of the night. Williams said he only learned about the mock hanging later and secondhand. Despite his claims, Williams was suspended along with the other officers. Although he came back after seven months, took his sergeant's exam, and was able to get his career back on track, Williams said that he always believed there was bad blood between him and the district attorney, Charles Graddock. By the time Williams began working on the Michael Donald investigation, Graddock had moved up to state district attorney, but the new mobile DA didn't make the detective's jobs any easier. During the investigation, Law enforcement received a tip from an informant about a group of people he met the night of the lynching. The caller identified Ralph Hayes, no relation to Henry Hayes, along with brothers Jimmy and Johnny Edgars. The caller described Hayes and the Edgars brothers as Cajuns who told him about whipping a young black man who matched Michael's description. The informant said the three men killed him over an overdue drug debt but the informant's claim put the suspects and Michael together several hours after Michael's official time of death. Regardless of the informant's time discrepancy, mobile DA Chris Galanos pushed to prosecute Hayes and the Edgars brothers. At the time, Galanos was under tremendous pressure to catch the person responsible for Michael Donald's death, and he wanted to arrest someone as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, Michael's grieving mother had to plan her son's funeral. Much like the tragic murder of Emmett Till, Beulah Donald insisted on an open casket funeral for her son a week after he died. She told CNN she wanted the world to see the horror he had gone through. Michael's case had sparked an uprising of protesters who were crowding the town demanding justice. Even civil rights leader Jesse Jackson paid a visit. D.A. Galanos wasn't pleased with the attention. He wanted Mobile out of the national spotlight. Based on the informant's tip, Hayes and the Edgars brothers were arrested on March 25, 1981. But in June, they were all set free. It turned out 
the informant had been lying because he had a plea deal with prosecutors that would lighten his own sentence if he gave up information. So he just made something up. The three suspects were released after a grand jury decided they had been arrested based on false information given under oath. With that, Michael Donald's case was pulled right back to square one. Cecilia Perry, Michael's sister, said that mobile police sat on the case while claiming they hadn't forgotten about her, but she remained frustrated by the lack of progress in the case. Finally, in 1983, two years after Michael's murder, the mobile police brought in the FBI to assist with their investigation. That marked the beginning of a deep-dive investigation into who the Black community had suspected all along, the local Klan. Special Agent James Bodman, who's retired now, was tapped to go down to Alabama in 1983. A previous FBI investigation had just ended without any results, and Bodman said in a CNN documentary that he didn't think he'd be able to find anything new. But his boss said the Justice Department wasn't allowing them to close the case, so Bodman went. His superiors insisted that Michael's murder was a drug deal gone bad and had nothing to do with race. But when Bodman discovered that Klan members had been living directly across the street from the site of the lynching, he started looking deeper into them. He told CNN, I'm thinking, gee whiz, what better place to start? So I started interviewing these people and I approached them with the idea that they were not the subject of the investigation other than the fact that I want your information. I want to know what you know. And the more I asked questions, the more they talked. After navigating multiple false leads and outright lies, Bodman, along with Mobile's assistant DA, found a verified fact. 17-year-old James Knowles had gone back to the Klan house on Herndon Avenue with blood on his shirt. At the time, Knowles shrugged it off when the others asked about it and he changed his clothes soon afterward. The lead was enough to go on, and the FBI, Mobile's district attorney, and the local police began focusing their investigation on the town's chapter of the United Clans of America. They were able to bring in several Klan members for questioning in front of a grand jury. One witness claimed that 26-year-old Henry Hayes had told him everything. When James Knowles heard that, he became worried that Hayes would turn him in. At the time, Knowles had federal mail fraud charges against him, which allowed law enforcement to arrest him at his parents' house. Under questioning, Knowles confessed to two local police officers that he had killed Michael Donald. During his confession, Knowles said that Henry Hayes was with him that night and that Hayes helped him kill Michael. Authorities then arrested Hayes, but he denied involvement and insisted on his innocence. At that point, authorities had enough evidence to file charges. Knowles was charged with violating Michael Donald's civil rights, and Hayes was charged with murder. James Lulin Tiger Knowles was only 17 years old when he participated in the murder of Michael Donald in 1981. Not much is known about his early life, but he admitted to being a full-fledged member of Mobile's chapter of United Clans of America at the time of Michael's lynching. Tiger Knowles was stocky with a square jaw. He had a full head of dark hair and a drooping mustache that made him look older than he really was. His eyes sunk into his head below heavy brows, 
and in most photographs from the trials, he appears somber, which is in stark contrast to how he appeared the morning Michael's body was discovered. On that day, Knowles seemed unfazed. A police photo of the crime scene caught him, Henry Hayes, and Henry's father, Benny Hayes, gathered in front of the house that had become a clan hangout spot. Benny, who was known to have a temper, had kicked up a fuss about the investigators and the crowd coming onto his property. It didn't matter, though. That photo led police to focus in on the trio after evidence against the drug dealers described as Cajun fell through. After questioning neighbors, authorities soon learned the identities of the three men and their affiliations with the clan. Tiger Knowles seemed like the weakest link, so the FBI focused their efforts on him first. He had already gotten into trouble for insurance fraud, which meant he could be hit with federal charges. The FBI figured they could use that threat to get information from Knowles about the lynching. Mobile detective Williams told the Daily Beast they kept after Tiger Knowles' family, and it had his mama so upset, he finally went and hired an attorney. Once in custody, Knowles quickly indicated that he wanted to talk about Michael's murder. He used the information he had as a bargaining chip for a lesser sentence. And during his confession, he implicated neighbor and fellow Klansman Henry Hayes as an equal participant in the crime. Henry Francis Hayes had a much more complicated relationship with both the clan and his father. He was born into and raised around the clan. His father, Benny Jack Hayes, rose in the hate group's ranks to the title of Titan. That meant Benny was the second highest clansman in the state by 1981 and in charge of the United Clans group that met regularly in the house he owned on Herndon Avenue in Mobile. It was in that house that Benny led the rage over a black man not getting convicted in a recent trial. A lawyer from the Southern Poverty Law Center would later say that the lynching was an obvious cry for approval from Henry to please his father, Benny. A regular meeting led by Benny at the Herndon Avenue house turned into a group blind fury. And according to Knowles, he and Henry mutually decided to take out their frustrations on whatever local black man they could find. Tiger Knoll's confession made it clear that he and Henry Hayes held an equal responsibility for the crime. It also showed just as clearly that Michael Donald was a complete stranger to both of them and that they targeted him simply because Michael looked like a good victim. According to a United Press International article from the trial coverage, Knoll said he seemed like a good victim because he was by himself and secluded. Knowles had borrowed a gun from another Klansman and brought it with him that night, but he testified that it was Henry who wielded the knife that cut Michael's throat and the rope they used to hang him afterward. Once they got back to Benny's house on Herndon Avenue, Knowles said that Henry anonymously called a few news outlets to tell them about the body now hanging across the street. Henry disputed Knowles' confession and continued to claim innocence. Knowles did acknowledge that he had lied in his testimony to the county grand jury set up by the FBI for initial questioning of suspects. But once the federal grand jury questioning kicked in, Knowles said that he told the truth. Although Knowles and Hayes were the ones who carried out the murder, investigators also indicted Henry's father, Benny Hayes, 
as well as Henry's brother-in-law, Benjamin Frank Cox. While Cox wasn't with Knowles and Hayes when they abducted and murdered Michael, he did help them cover up evidence when they got back to the house. He was also the Klansman who snuck over to the mobile courthouse and set a cross on fire on its lawn during the aftermath. Once the FBI had gotten a confession out of Knowles in June of 1983, he and Hayes were arrested. At that time, Knowles pleaded guilty in federal court to the lesser charge of violating Michael Donald's civil rights in exchange for his agreement to testify against Hayes. That meant that Knowles would not be considered for the death penalty. Instead, he received a lifetime prison sentence. Nearly three years after Michael Donald was murdered, Henry Hayes was tried in the Alabama state court system so that the death penalty would be an option for him. He was charged with the murder of Michael Donald, and his capital trial began on December 6, 1983, in Mobile. Two days into the trial, Tiger Knowles took the stand to testify against him. On the witness stand, Knowles went into minute detail regarding the night he and Hayes killed Michael. He said they wanted revenge for the mistrial verdict in the case of a black man accused of killing a white police officer, and any black man they found would do. At first, they considered an older black man they spotted before seeing Michael, but the older man was too far from their vehicle. According to the United Press International, once they caught Michael, Knowles said to the jury he fought like an animal. He continued describing Michael's resistance, saying that Michael pleaded, please don't kill me. Knowles testified that during the final moments of the attack, both of us managed to get the rope around his neck. Hayes was pulling the rope. I was hitting him with the limb. Then, Knowles testified, Hayes slit Michael's throat. Shopify's new sales sound will make anyone smile. The moment you hear cha-ching, you know you've made another sale on Shopify. Entrepreneurs with businesses ranging from upstart to established need resources that allow them to sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. That is exactly what Shopify provides, which is why millions of businesses are powered by Shopify, from first sale to full scale. With an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more, Shopify helps businesses reach customers across social networks, a valuable tool for any business. What does possibility powered by Shopify look like? For starters, you'll gain access to key business insights like detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you and your business, providing valuable resources every step of the way. Go to shopify.com murderish, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com murderish right now. Shopify.com murderish. The New York Times described the courtroom as small with a predominantly black crowd of about 60 people who witnessed Knowles' testimony. Michael's mother, Beulah, couldn't make it, but the rest of his family were there. They wept as Knowles described how Michael was savagely killed. After a trial that lasted two weeks, 
a jury consisting of 11 white people and one black person, declared Henry Hayes guilty of murdering Michael Donald on December 20th, 1983. They sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Two months later, however, in an unusual move, the trial's judge increased Hayes' punishment to death by electric chair. Michael's family didn't comment as they left the courtroom, but according to the New York Times, Henry Hayes' father, Benny, declared his son innocent and said this was all the fault of liars and communists who were out to get him by persecuting his son. Mobile County Circuit Court Judge Braxton Cottrell Jr. said that his reasoning for upgrading Hayes' sentence to death was based on the brutality of the lynching crime, as well as the fact that the victim's wallet was stolen during the murder. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the judge said this meant that two felonies were committed at the same time. Hayes' defense attorney argued that in 1981, when the lynching happened, Alabama's death penalty law prevented judges from raising a sentence to death if a jury recommended life in prison. The law, however, was changed before the start of Hayes' trial. Judge Cottrell said that he believed the state lawmakers wanted the court itself, i.e. the judge, and not the jury to be the final sentencing authority. Given that it was a death penalty case, Hayes automatically went through an appeals process, but the death penalty judgment remained. Over a decade later, in 1997, a Southern Poverty Law Center lawyer told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, there is no question that Henry Hayes was trying to impress his father and would not have otherwise have done this crime. At trial, and in his own defense, he could have said, you should spare my life because the person who should be on trial is my father. He is as responsible for murdering Donald as I am. Take pity on me. But Henry always denied the crime, so of course, he couldn't put that evidence on trial. Henry Hayes never gave personal testimony about feeling pressure from his father to participate in the hate crime, so we'll never know how much his father may have influenced his actions. That said, after his conviction, Henry claimed that he had unwillingly joined the Klan to please his father, according to a Washington Post article. Thirteen years after he was sentenced to death, on June 6, 1997, Henry Hayes was executed by Alabama's electric chair. After her son's killers were convicted, Michael's mother, Beulah, took a lawyer's advice and sued the members of Unit 900 and the United Clans of America, the KKK group that Knowles and Hayes had belonged to. Morris Dees was a co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit organization based in Alabama and dedicated to rooting out hate groups in America. In 1984, the SPLC was recovering from a recent arson committed by the Klan that destroyed their office building. During the rebuild, Morris Dees saw Beulah's lawsuit as a way to take out the area's Klan while also giving Beulah a chance to share Michael's story with a larger audience. Beulah and her attorney, Alabama State Representative Michael A. Figures, agreed. It took a year and a half to prepare the case. Dees, Figures, and their support system had to find former and current Klan members willing to testify that they were given orders to perform hate crimes from the state's Klan leader. These included members not only in and from Mobile, but also those involved in the beatings of freedom writers, 
the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, the shooting near Selma, and other acts of violence against civil rights activists across the state during the 1960s. While everything was coming together, Beulah told the Times that Dees checked on her frequently. She told the paper about her attorney. He'd say, you still ready to go through with this? And he did everything possible. Beulah was ready. She hadn't been able to attend Henry Hayes' criminal trial in person, but she made it to the civil trial, which began on June 14, 1984. Although she was able to maintain her composure while the other Klansmen testified, Beulah broke down when Tiger Knowles once again described how he and Henry Hayes killed her son. This time, he demonstrated the movements he and Hayes used to commit the crime. Beulah silently cried during his testimony. Four days after giving testimony, just before closing arguments, Knowles told Dees that he wanted to speak to the court again. Dees granted him time, but warned Knowles not to try to be a lawyer. According to the Times, Knowles took that advice and instead spoke with more emotion than he'd displayed during all of his previous testimony. As reported in the Times, Knowles cried while looking at Beulah as he said, I can't bring your son back. God knows if I could trade places with him, I would. I can't. Whatever it takes, I have nothing. But I will have to do it. And if it takes me the rest of my life to pay it, any comfort it may bring, I hope it will. In response, Beulah said, I do forgive you. From the day I found out who you all was, I asked God to take care of y'all, and he has. The jury arrived at a verdict four hours later. Beulah May Donald was awarded $7 million for the lynching death of her son. That amount of money meant the United Clans of America had to give Beulah their Tuscaloosa building. The jury's verdict also meant that Beulah would be considered too wealthy to stay in the low-income housing that Michael and the rest of her family had grown up in. So, she sold the clan's former building and used the money to buy her own house. She told the Times that the monetary value of the judgment wasn't important to her, saying, I wasn't even thinking about the money. If I hadn't gotten a cent, it wouldn't have mattered. I wanted to know how and why they did it. Not only did Beulah's civil lawsuit bring the area's clan to its knees, testimony of the Klansmen during the civil trial uncovered enough evidence to indict Benny Hayes on murder charges in February of 1988, but the Klan leader would never face trial. He collapsed during the process, and the judge declared a mistrial. Benny Hayes died before another trial could be set. Beulah May Donald, who raised seven children on her own and who fearlessly took a local KKK group down, passed away in 1988. Tiger Knowles served 25 years in prison and was released in 2010. In 2006, Herndon Avenue was renamed after Michael Donald in his memory. Check out my new podcast, Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story with ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. I appreciate you all for joining me on this episode of Murderish. 
If you've binged every episode and don't want to wait for the next one to drop, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. As soon as you sign up, you'll get immediate access to a bunch of ad-free murderish episodes that cover cases not available on the free version of the podcast. To become a Patreon supporter, visit Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes. Or you can just search for Murderish on Patreon.com. I want to say a big thank you to Don S., Karen S., Diane R., Erica W., Camilla H., Viv P., Tanya N., Sharon D., and Nancy S. for becoming Patreon supporters. Thank you all so much. Your support means a lot. If you enjoy Murderish, there are so many ways you can support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. This helps other people find the show easier. You can also wear a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Check out Murderish.com for a link to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Also, don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. You can also find the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Melanie Griffin. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.